Our Old Testament text is the 126th Psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's uh, wonderful to be with you, and it's wonderful to be with some friends. We've had Joel Salatin and John Moody with us, and they're here this morning. And if you don't know who they are, well, too bad. It's uh, your fault. You should know who they are. It's also great to have my son, Caleb, and my daughter-in-law, Whitney, and Elowin and Anastase. And it's also great to see you, too. It's great to just all be together like this and worshiping the Lord. And we have some other friends here as well. Um, I'm particularly pleased to preach from this text because this is, you know, one of my favorite psalms. Might be my favorite, maybe my second. Uh, I know that the collection of uh, sermons I've been delivering have been entitled Favorite Psalms. And, uh, you know, there is a pecking order, and this is uh, certainly uh, at near the top for me. Uh, next week I'll be preaching in Psalm 127, which is another one of my favorites. Basically, uh, when I think about kind of the themes that I return to again and again in my ministry. Uh, one of those themes is the happy ending. You're probably so tired of hearing about happy endings, you never want to hear another happy ending story again. But hey, too bad, you have to live with it, because I think that this particular psalm is all about the happy ending. And then households. Uh, so I've written about households. I've written three books on the theme of the household, and next week's uh, psalm addresses the, the, the wonder and the the glory and the beauty of the uh, household, uh, particularly uh, those who are blessed to live in a believing household. So let's, let's uh, come uh, and uh, take a closer look at Psalm 126. There's a, there's a um, Shakespearean comedy. Uh, you're probably familiar with the phrase, but maybe didn't know that this is where the phrase comes from. All's well that ends well. It's a title. It's a title uh, of one of those uh, Shakespearean, that's uh, a comedy, as I noted. Um, and as I reflect on that theme, all's well that ends well, it occurs to me, and I've said this many times, that Christianity gave the world the happy ending. It didn't have a happy ending before we told the world about it. If you look at literature and mythology throughout the, the, uh, the world, you, uh, you have basically lots of stories that end very badly for all the people in the stories. Um, think about, you know, Greek drama. You know, you've got comedy and you've got tragedy, and I've noted this many times, but in a tragedy, uh, at the end, everybody's dead. Everybody's lying on the stage, you know, Sophocles, Antigone, you know, what are they? They're all dead. There's some fatal flaw in the protagonist, and that leads to a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> uh, and then and in a comedy, uh, in Greek comedy, it's not like, you know, the comedy that we enjoy when we go to see a good comedy in the theater or whatever. It basically, everybody's a fool. That's the joke. 
So in the end, everybody's either dead or feels stupid. That's Greek drama. Then you have mythology. So let's take a look at Ragnarok, Norse mythology, the end of the world, the story of the end of the world. You know, there's a, a lot of just nonsense that floats around out there about the nature of Ragnarok. Here's how the end of the world occurs in Ragnarok, the end of the world according to Norse mythology. All the gods die. There, happy ending. Now, there are like really, you know, sort of half-educated guys who, you know, maybe get into Norse mythology a little bit and they dream about Valhalla, you know, some shaled sheed maiden who comes, you know, and takes, you know, this great warrior to Valhalla so he can hang out with Odin and all the other really cool, awesome guys waiting for Ragnarok. So what you see in the collection of these great heroes is basically Odin recruiting his army for the final battle, which he loses. So you don't like spend forever hanging out with shield maidens, guys. You're basically just kind of waiting for the end and then you're dead. Thor dies, Odin dies, they all die. You know, and when you think about it, there's plenty of evidence for this to be the way to think about the world, right? Basically, just take a look at the second law of thermodynamics, right? Heat death. It's all winding down. It's all winding down. And in the end, according to this particular way of thinking, basically the universe is just dead. Rocks floating aimlessly. Actually, not even floating anymore. It just kind of stopped <laughs> forever. That's the end of the world according to science. Aren't you glad? And uh, we have, uh, you know, sort of uh, approaches to this particular thing in ancient philosophy. Stoicism. Stoicism. It's been remarkable to see how Stoicism has kind, kind of come through, come, come, kind of experienced a revival. Have you noticed this? You go to Barnes and Noble uh, and you see all these books about Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, etc. Well, you know, what's one of the great mottos the Stoics lived by? And the Epicureans, too. You know, Epicureans weren't any better. Basically, the Epicurean outlook is like, we're going to be garden philosophers, we're going to withdraw from the world, we're going to eat cheese, we're going to drink wine, we're going to hang out with our friends and let the world just kind of go. That's, Epicure that the, that's the Epicurean outlook. Stoicism is we're going to let the world kind of end, but we're going to do our duty while it ends. That's Stoicism. Memento mori. Remember, you will die. That's your consolation. <laughs> In Stoicism, with the Epicureans, that's it. Now, I think that what we see in this particular psalm is something of that outlook uh, taken by surprise. Here we have the psalmist uh, there in verse 1 say this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We never dreamed this would happen. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now, Matthew Henry, reflecting upon this particular psalm, uh, proposed that this psalm was composed after the Israelites had returned from exile in Babylon. They had gotten accustomed to captivity. They had gotten accustomed to death. They had gotten accustomed to oppression. They had gotten accustomed to threats. They had gotten accustomed to the minority status that they suffered from. They had gotten accustomed to all that stuff. And then when the Lord delivered them, it was like, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. 
But the Lord did it anyway. The Lord delivered them. And what I think we can say, and in, as we reflect upon this particular matter, this particular episode in the history of Israel, is not all the evidence was in. They had plenty of evidence to work with. Here we are, Babylon, you know, plucking our lyres by the sea, right, or by the river. And, you know, their oppressors would say things like, hey, sing another one of those songs of Zion. They're so great. We love to hear you sing about that place. Kind of takes us away. Sing the blues again. It's great. <laughs> anyway, that's what it was like. Now, I, I write stories. I've written novels, short stories, etc. And uh, so I've got a, an outlook on this particular matter that is informed by the fact that I write stories. So I tell stories. And one of the things about telling a story is the middle is always muddled, even for the author, if the author is a human author. I can't tell you the number of stories I've written where I get to the middle and I know what the protagonist is you know, in danger of losing or suffering from, but I have no idea how he's going to get out or she's going to get away. But I just spend all my time thinking about it. You know, how am I going to get this person out of this situation? You know? and, and you know, I think that that's the way it is when you're in the middle of any story. And we are in the middle of a story. You're in the middle of your story. You're facing a predicament. You're in the muddle. And you have no clue how you're going to get out of it. Now, when my daughter was small, I would uh, tell stories to my sons and my daughter. My daughter had a very low tolerance for tension, narrative tension. So it was basically all of the stories had rainbows and butterflies and birds and nothing bad ever happened in the stories. And I was like, this is the most boring story in the world, but she would just love me, into, you know, love hearing the story told and I would tell. Now she's in a different place in life now where she's actually re reading Russian literature. So that's about as depressing as you can be. But you get the drift. Uh, but when I would tell the boys stories or I would write a story, I would work people into predicaments and then try to get them out of those predicaments. Now, one of the things you can always do when you find a particular character in a predicament is send in the cavalry, right? Dudley Do-Right, Nell, you know, right? Snidely Whiplash. That puts me, kind of puts a, a different, puts a frame of reference on my childhood right there. But there you have Nell being tied to the railroad tracks by Snidely Whiplash, curling his mustache as he does so. And then you have Dudley Do-Right, who's on his horse backwards, of course, coming to the rescue. And he arrives just in time, and in his own inimitable way, he saves Nell. But what you have when you tell a story and you have that kind of deliverance is something that critics have called uh, Deus Ex Machina, or Ex Machina, which it means literally the God and the machine. So in antiquity, when some particular protagonist was delivered from a dire situation in a Greek tragedy or Greek comedy. Literally, there'd be somebody on a crane who was representing Aphrodite or Mars, uh, or I'm mean, actually, you know, so some, some deity who would be lowered on a crane and save the day. And so one of the things you're discouraged uh, from doing when you write stories is resort to that kind of deliverance. And we live in a world today where we no longer just think about, or we don't even think about, I should say, God coming to deliver us in that way. We kind of think that, you know, reality itself is a kind of machine. Deism is a particular way of thinking about God and creation, which actually 
maintains that we live in a vast machine that's so complex and sort of well-designed that it doesn't really need any divine intervention at all. God just kind of winds things up and goes on vacation. You know, maybe looks in every once in a while, wish you well, but basically things just kind of operate in that way. And really the way people think about reality is like that, that we're kind of on our own. And the bad part of that, and there are a number of bad things, or one of the bad things about that, is that uh, we don't really have any confidence that God will come to the rescue at some point. That God will bring, uh, you know, a resolution to the story that is both just and encouraging and a source of joy. We're kind of left to ourselves. Because that's the case, we feel like we have to take matters into our own hands many times. You know, the old saying, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. We think about that when it comes to justice. If I don't get revenge, if I don't get back at somebody for what they did to me, that's the end of the story, and the bad guy gets away, and the good guy, meaning me or you in that particular situation, just kind of has to live with the consequences because we really don't believe that God comes to save the day, that God will enter the story and do something for us. And the world, I want you to know, is not a machine. If we're going to use some kind of analogy to describe it, I really think it's a story. It's a story. And when we think about this story, there is an author and there is an authority. By the way, did you ever notice that difference between the words author and authority are only an itty bit of difference, I-T-Y. So the author is the authority, and there's authorial intent. Now that's something that in most literature departments these days is just dismissed. You know, it's all about you and what you get out of the story. It doesn't really matter what the author meant. Uh, you have the authority as the reader to decide what it means, and that's why we get all of this crazy sort of revisionism in entertainment today. But anyway, the world is a story. God is the author. He has some intention for the story he's writing with our lives. That's the big difference between God's stories and our stories. God writes his stories with people and with the world. And I just used a pen <laughs> and a word processor. Uh, in some small way, I reflect what God is up to. But here's something that I can't do that God does. God enters the story. Again and again in Scripture, God doesn't lower himself by means of a crane into the world. God actually enters the world marvelously. And whenever that occurs in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, you know that uh, things uh, are going to be judged, that God has shown up to set things right. You know, you think about story of, you know, basically Noah's Ark, what happens first? God comes down and says, is it really as bad down here as I've been hearing? Yep, it's bad. <laughs> Time to clean this place up. Time to clean this up. Sodom and Gomorrah, I've heard some things and I'm here to check out to see if things are as bad as I've heard. Yep, time to clean this place up. When God shows up, same thing at Tower of Babel, what in the world? Okay, everybody out of the pool. That's it. No more fun. It's time to set things right. So God does come in, enter the story, and what do we have with Christ? God with us. 
entering the story. The Son of God, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, doing something good that we couldn't do for ourselves, saving us, saving the day, giving us a reason to be grateful, to say, I never saw that coming. Can you believe it? This is marvelous. God saved us when we were hopeless. That's the gospel. Now, I want to reflect with you a little bit about the muddle, because you might think of yourself as being in the muddle at the moment. Here you are, in the middle of the muddle. What should you do? Well, we're told in verses 5 and 6 that we should do something that doesn't come easily. Verse 5 reads, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Those who sow in tears, do you feel like that's you right now? Is there something that you are in the middle of that just has affected you in such a way that you feel like crying? Um, do you feel overwhelmed? Do you think that there's no hope? Do you really believe that you're on your own? And if, if that's the case, there definitely is no hope because you can't figure out <laughs> what to do or how to deliver yourself from the situation you find yourself in. Now, the statement, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I want to focus on the first few words there, those who sow in tears. What are you sowing? You're sowing seed, of course. And the thing you can do with seed is you can either sow it or eat it. You can either sow it or eat it. Seed corn is corn. In other words, you can try to get what you can get today, or you can believe that there's something better in store down the road, and what you do with the resources that you have now reflects whether or not you believe that's the case. Now, as you're sowing, it may not feel very good. You might be crying as you throw that food on the ground because you say to yourself, I could really use that right about now. I need the nourishment. I need the sustenance. I need, I need somebody to, I need some me time. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like, I'm always the one that goes the extra mile. I'm always the one who says, I'm sorry first. Isn't it about time that somebody paid attention to me? Right? And you think, it's me time. Take the corn, shove it in your mouth. Time to indulge. Time to spend a little bit of time on yourself. Nevertheless, what we're told in this particular psalm is that those who sow in tears are looking forward to something that will give them a reason to be joyful. Think about my favorite biblical character, Abram. Now, Jesus is my favorite biblical character. Just don't worry. But apart from him, number two, number two, Abraham. So there he is, you know, kind of minding his own business, hanging out in his dad's house, you know, in Genesis chapter 12. And he is told, you need to leave home. You need to leave everything behind and just go to the land I will show you. Where is it? Just go. I'll tell you. Just go. So he packs up and he heads out. So he traded in the sure thing, right? The household that he would likely inherit, right? For the one he was promised that he couldn't see. The one who made the promise is the one who was trusted. 
He didn't trust himself in that moment. He trusted the Lord. And because he trusted the Lord, he obeyed. This is another thing to kind of keep in mind. Trust and obey. Yes, we trust that everything that's been done for us in Christ that needed to be done to save us has been done. But there's still something for you and me to do. <laughs> we live obediently because of gratitude and because we believe that, you know, the law has outlined for us the best way to live. So that's why we obey God's word. Not because we're afraid of being cast into hell the next minute, but because it really is the best way to live. We believe that because we believe the one who gave us the law is faithful and just, and he makes promises to his people. And he's promised uh, a number of things to us, and so we believe those promises and we obey. But in the middle of the muddle, when you're wondering how the story is going to end and how God could possibly deliver you from the difficulty that you fight, you face at that moment, you could be tempted to doubt it, right? You could be left wondering, how could God possibly get me out of this particular situation? But nevertheless, that's the case. And we have in the example of our Lord, someone who faced the most awful thing that could happen to a person, but he believed in spite of the fact that the most awful thing that could happen to a person was about to happen to him, he believed that there was going to be more to the story that followed that event. I'm talking, of course, about his crucifixion. He died for you and me. Not just because he was coming to the end of his story, but because through that death, he would be raised, and on the other side of death, he would experience something that he would experience for you and me, and that because of that, you and I believing in him, we uh, share in the blessing of his resurrection and his glorification. And what we have in Christ is a promise, not just that the sins that we've committed ha have been covered by his blood and we've been forgiven, but that there's a life, there's an end to the story, that death, itself is not the final note in the song. Life will follow death. That's what is unexpected. That's the thing that, that we're told that we should believe. And because that's the case, we're able to be uh, told things like, whoever will save his life will lose it, right? The one who seeks to save his life, who eats his corn now, <laughs> Uh, is uh, basically left to die, but the one who loses his life now will find it. And by the way, did you know that you are a seed? Let me take you to a passage of Scripture that I don't think we reflect on enough. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 37, and again, 42 and 43. Um, we're told there, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. That's the happy ending. That's the happy ending Christianity 
proclaims to the world. This is a deliverance that the world cannot perform for itself. We cannot raise the dead. We can't keep death from taking us forever. There are people who are actually working at it. You know, there are people out there, and I've noted this many times, who believe that death is a kind of engineering problem, you know, Ray Kurzweil and all the transhumanists. But, you know, if they give themselves another 100 years, there's still the final story to be told about their approach. It will fail. It will fail. The only hope that we have for a happy ending where we live happily ever after is the gospel. That's it. There is no other way. Check out the other ways that are proposed. They don't end nearly as well. <laughs> I want you to know that. We have the gospel, the good news of the happy ending. And that happy ending makes it possible for us at any given moment to die to ourselves knowing that God keeps our interests in mind and that things will be set right at the end of the story. And you might go through life never being thanked, never being vindicated, but it doesn't matter because the opinions of the people that surround you and even your own opinion is not the final judgment. There is a final judgment. The Lord will sit on his throne and judge. And that is good news too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. We're glad that we see the gospel all through the Bible, including the Psalms, including parts of the Old Testament that people don't think uh, reflect the gospel and its truth. Uh, nevertheless, Lord, we're glad that, that uh, both the Old and New Testaments testify to the same reality. We ask you, Lord, to help us believe it. We find ourselves in a world where sometimes we're discouraged. We find ourselves in the muddle. We don't know how things could possibly work out right. But you're there, and you're at work in our lives. And give us faith, Lord, to know and believe that you are at work to bring about a happy ending in our particular stories. In Christ's name, amen.